Well, good evening. Good evening. Hope everyone's doing well tonight. And I want to thank you very much for coming out. We have a lot of ground to cover tonight. And uh, as kind of was the case last night, I have far more material than what I have time to present. So if this seems a little bit disjointed, it's because it will be a little bit disjointed. I'm going to have to skip some parts uh, in order to get kind of the most important things in. So uh, let's dive right into it here. Tonight's session is entitled Mangled Manifestations. Tonight we'll be looking at some of the more dramatic, spectacular things of the Word Faith Movement, the Charismatic Movement in general. We'll be talking about tongues. We'll be talking about people who claim to have been to heaven, how God does and does not speak to us today. So all of these issues. Now, uh, there is a debate within Christianity today as to whether or not the apostolic gifts, the sign gifts, continue to be in operation. When I say apostolic gifts, sign gifts, I'm referring to tongues, interpretation of tongues, and that's a separate gift, by the way, from the gift of tongues. A lot of people don't understand that, but two different gifts. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and physical healing. Uh, there is a posi position known as continuism. And if you are a continuist or a continuationist, that means that you believe that all of the spiritual gifts are in operation in the church today. Another way of saying that is you are a charismatic because that is the charismatic position. Whether or not you speak in tongues personally really does not matter. But if you believe that all of those spiritual gifts are in operation, that is by definition the charismatic position. And there is another position known as cessationism. But before I define cessationism, uh, I want to give you an example of what cessationism is not. Um, now, ladies, I'm going to ask you to uh, take a deep breath in, out, uh, I'm, because I'm, I'm, I'm fixing, I'm about to name a name that is a very popular name, and I just ask you to bear with me and, and um, hear me out. But uh, watch this from Beth Moore. Be people of the Word of God. And so we got a lot of things going in our current religious culture. And we've got two extremes I want to address tonight so that we can understand them. First of all, I want you to look over to this side. We have the religious culture of the extreme that I'm going to call cessationism. Now I'm making up a word with that ism. But you know the word cessation. And it is a word that comes from cease. And this particular extreme teaching in the body of Christ says all miracles have ceased. For all practical purposes, God no longer works miracles in our day. It would behoove Beth Moore before she teaches on something to at least know how to define it. And that is not cessationism. What you just heard, that is not the definition of cessationism. Cessationism is not the belief that God is no longer doing miracles today. If we were to say that, then we would have to say that God is no longer saving people today because the greatest miracle of all is not when the blind see or the lame walk. It's when the dead are raised, not physically dead, but spiritually dead, raised to newness of life in Christ. So uh, if God is no longer doing miracles, then He's no longer saving people. So uh, that is just not the definition of cessationism. Cessationism, uh, neither is it the belief that God is no longer giving spiritual gifts today. 
I am a card-carrying cessationist. And as a cessationist, I fully affirm that the gifts of teaching, mercy, administration, exhortation, hospitality, gift of giving, all of these gifts are very much operative in the church today. Only the apostolic gifts, only the sign gifts have ceased. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and physical healing. So since I opened this can of worms, uh, I, I want to give you just a few bullet points dealing with Beth Moore and, and just a, a very cursory view of why I have so much concern with her. Beth Moore is very, very ecumenical. She teaches, for example, that Roman Catholics are Christian. Not only does she teach that, but she claims that God gave her a vision. And I have video of this, just don't have time to... But she claims that God gave her an, an open vision of the church that includes Roman, Roman Catholicism. God did not give her that vision. She has very poor hermeneutics. She's very prone to uh, taking promises that God made to individuals or the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and making blanket application for us today. Uh, that's just, that's bad hermeneutics and it leads you to some bad conclusions. Uh, but she, she regularly takes scripture out of context. I mean regularly, regularly. I, I can honestly say, I've watched quite a bit of her teaching. She gets, her Bible interpretation, she gets far more of it wrong than she does right. Um, and to that, honestly, Beth Moore is getting worse. She was actually better 15 years ago than what she is now. She's progressively getting worse, which is a, a bad sign. Uh, she has mystical, extra-biblical, divine re revelation. She regularly claims that uh, she hears God speak to her in a direct, quotable sense outside of Scripture. That is another huge, huge red flag. And Beth Moore has regular associations with known false teachers. Um, I want to show you this. Watch this from Beth Moore and Joyce Meyer. I was astonished when I came um, to the ministry today, Joyce, um, what God has used you to do and the magnitude of it. Well, I guess perhaps the place that you get the most peace is that you know no human being could possibly have come up exactly. with it. You have to know God is with you because nobody you could have do done it. No. Do it. No. no, and I thought, I asked the Lord this morning in my hotel room. I said, you know what? I want, I want to be a blessing to Joyce. I said, I know she's going to be a blessing to me, but how could I bless her? Lord, she, what... Uh, what could I do? She, you've blessed her in such uh, magnificent ways. And there, what could she possibly um, want or need from somebody like me? And, you know, I thought to myself, I, I don't have uh, much to offer you but this, Joyce Meyer. I offer you my respect. Thank you. I offer you my esteem. And I say to you, you are a mighty, mighty woman of God, and you have run and are running your race well. That I can bring you today. That I have to give. That pretty much speaks for itself, does it not? I mean, Joyce Meyer is a false teacher. 
Joyce Meyer is Word of Faith. Joyce Meyer is everything that we looked at last night. Joyce Meyer teaches. The Bible is not unclear about how we are to deal with false teachers. John writes, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. The Bible is very clear. False teachers are not to be coddled. They are not to be endorsed. They are not to be partnered with. We are not to enter into spiritual enterprises with them. They are to be marked and avoided. <coughs> Beth Moore does the opposite of that. And for all intents and purposes, Beth Moore's teaching now is full-blown word of faith. Full-blown word of faith. So it, it's very troubling. Now, ladies, don't despair. Um, I can recommend a very good, sound uh, female Bible teacher. You know, ladies, if... If you want to do a Bible study, you don't just have to do a Bible study written by a lady. You know, you can do one written by men. But if you want to do one written by a lady, uh, I would commend to you Susan Heck. Her website is withthemaster.com, withthemaster.com. Susan has 26 books of the Bible memorized. Um, yeah, I mean, she, she knows her stuff. She's friends of me and Kathy. Her husband, Doug Heck, was our pastor when we lived in Oklahoma up until a few years ago. So we're, we're good friends with both of them. They're both uh, very doc doctrinally sound. So anyway, uh, withthemaster.com. If you've done a Beth Moore Bible study or Joyce Meyer Bible study or something like that, uh, and you go to one by Susan Heck, it'll be like going from potted meat to filet mignon. You'll, you'll notice the difference really quickly. Okay, I want to kind of get going here with a quiz, a pop quiz. Which theological group does the following? Which group do you automatically think of when you see these behaviors? Erratic jerking and shaking, uncontrollable laughter, they get slain in the spirit, they prophesy, they have physical healings, and they speak in tongues. Which group do you automatically think of when you see these behaviors? Pentecostal, charismatic, right? Hindus, does that surprise you? There is a, no, good. There is a, there is a subset within Hinduism known as Kundalini. And people in Hindu Kundalini exhibit the exact same behaviors that charismatics do. They get slain in the spirit, they jerk and shake, they have uncontrollable laughter, Holy Ghost laughter like the charismatics do, and they speak in tongues. And they speak in tongues in identically the same way, in exactly the same way that charismatics do. You can put video clips of people in Hindu Kundalini, side by side video clips of charismatics, and you can't tell the difference. They look exactly alike. So what does that tell us? that tells us that just because someone is exhibiting one or more of these behaviors is not necessarily an indication that that ability is, from, is coming from God. Pagans do it too. And they do it in the exact same way and just as convincingly as do charismatics. Dear friends, no matter how real an experience may seem to us, if that experience does not plumb with the Word of God, then it is illegitimate. We have done what Paul said not to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, do not exceed what is written. And when we do exceed what is written, 
when we exceed biblical parameters, we are opening ourselves up to demonic influence and demonic suggestion. We cannot interpret the Bible by what we experience. We must interpret our experiences by the Bible. Okay? All right. Now, I want us to look at the gift of tongues. Just a few bullet point items here dealing with tongues kind of in a general nature. And I'm going to go through these more quickly than what I should just for time's sake. Tongues not unique to Christianity. We spoke about that just a second ago. Pagans do it too. Mormons uh, speak in tongues. Uh, some Muslims, if you can believe it, speak in tongues. There's actually a lot of religions that speak in tongues. It's not unique to Christianity. Tongues can be practiced in an ignorant, ungodly way. Tongues can be practiced in such a way that it brings attention to the person speaking in tongues rather than glorifying Christ and edifying his church. If done in public, in corporate worship, an interpreter must always be present and must always interpret. The Apostle Paul says that tongues must be done by two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. And Paul says if there is no one there to interpret, let him remain silent. If there is no interpretation given, it is not of God, period, period. It is false that all believers should speak in tongues. Some churches teach that if you are saved, your salvation will be evidenced by you speaking in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, well, then you must not be saved. But that's patently unbiblical. The Apostle Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, all are not apostles, are they? All do not teach, do they? All do not work miracles, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? And clearly the implied answer to these rhetorical questions is no. No, they don't. So it's patently unbiblical to teach that if you are saved, you must speak in tongues. Now, we don't make that assertion for any of the other spiritual gifts, do we? Have you ever heard someone say, well, well if you don't have the gift of administration, you're not a Christian. You know, no, we... We don't say that for any of the other spiritual gifts, so why do we carve out an exception for the gift of tongues? It doesn't make any sense. Tongues were for a sign of judgment. This is something that almost everybody misses. I myself miss for years and years. There's only one place in the New Testament that gives us a reason, a function, for the gift of tongues, and Paul gives us that in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22. Paul says that tongues were for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, what did Paul mean by that? Did Paul mean that when an unbeliever sees you speaking in tongues, that they will be just so impressed by that ability that they will just have to come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord? No, that's not at all what he meant. And we know that that's not what he meant because here he quotes Isaiah chapter 28. Well, what's going on in Isaiah chapter 28? Judgment. <coughs> judgment. One of the signs that God was bringing judgment against unbelieving Israel is that one day the Jews would wake up and there would be a group of people in their midst speaking a foreign language. Not unintelligible gibberish, but a foreign language, Babylonian, Assyrian, what have you. And when the Jews saw this, that there was a group of people in their midst speaking a language that they did not know, they knew, uh-oh, God's about to bring the hammer down. God's bringing judgment. And this is what Paul quotes when he gives us a function for the gift of tongues, this is what we see in Acts chapter 2, which brings me to my next point, Acts chapter 2. 
men were speaking not in unintelligible gibberish, they were speaking in known languages, not gibberish, known languages. In fact, the languages are even listed there in Acts chapter uh, 2, and there's like 15, 16 different languages. You can actually see what the languages were, they weren't speaking in gibberish. And so when these men began speaking in different languages, that was a sign that God's salvific gaze, if you will, was shifting away from Israel to the Gentiles. Israel had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They crucified Him. And so as a sign of judgment against unbelieving Israel, these men began speaking in different languages. That was a sign that God was turning away from the Jews, away from Israel, towards the Gentiles. And even to this very day, Israel remains under the judgment of God. Now, I'm not talking about a militaristic judgment. I'm not talking about a political judgment. I'm not saying we should not support the nation of Israel. We absolutely should support the nation of Israel. But in a salvific sense, God has brought a partial hardening to the nation of Israel. Okay? And to this day, the vast majority of Jews continue to reject Christ as the Messiah. There's a handful of Jews, Messianic Jews, but uh, most of them, vast majority, continue to reject Christ. Now, one day, God will return to Israel. Romans 11, I think, is pretty clear about that. God will return to Israel in a dramatic way. But until that time comes, Israel is under the judgment of God. And this is what the gift of tongues, the gift of languages, signified. Now... Uh, I promised you last night that I was going to give you a demonstration of how to speak in tongues, right? Okay, so here we go. Uh, let's pretend like we are in, um, you know, whatever. We're at uh, Redemption Hill Church in Jerusalem. Okay, we're at Redemption Hill Church in Jerusalem, and we're in the year A.D. 55. Okay, apostolic age, the apostles are still around, they're preaching, teaching, planting churches, writing scripture, all these things. So we've gathered together uh, for corporate worship on a Sunday morning, Jerusalem in the year A.D. 55, gift of tongues, all the apostolic gifts still in operation. Here's what the gift of tongues would have looked like 2,000 years ago. Um, Raul, can you stand up just for a second, brother? Sure. All right. So we've gathered for corporate worship, and God gives Brother Raul the gift of languages, better said the gift of languages rather than tongues. But God gives Raul the gift of languages and all of a sudden Raul starts communicating that language that he, I mean, excuse me, that message that he got from God. He communicates it to us with 100% accuracy, but he communicates it in a language that none of us understand. He, he starts communicating that language to us and all of a sudden he starts speaking it in fluent Swahili. Do you speak Swahili? Not that much. Not that much? <laughs> so he starts speaking this, this, this communication from the Lord, communicates it in fluent Swahili, even though he doesn't know Swahili, but all of a sudden he can speak it fluently. But there's a problem because none of us speak Swahili either, and so we have no idea what Brother Raul is saying. Ah. But you see, I just happen to have the gift of interpretation of tongues. And so all of a sudden, I can, I can translate what Raul is saying in Swahili back into English in our example here so that we can understand what God said to Raul, even though I don't know a word of Swahili either. 
and Raul would sit down. Thank you, brother. Remember? Yeah, I mean, it would okay. typically, corp yeah, typically with a, some believers gathered together, not just, you know, walking down the road or something. But. All right, and so remember Paul said it must be done by two or at the most three, each in turn, right? So, uh, Brandon, can you stand up, brother? So God gives Brandon, brother Brandon, a, com a message to communicate to us, but instead of speaking it in English, all of a sudden Brandon starts speaking it in fluent Farsi. Do you speak Farsi? Not today. Not today. <laughs> so uh, he communicates that message to us in fluent Farsi, even though he doesn't know Farsi. But there's a problem, because none of us speaks Farsi either. Ah, you see, but I just happen to have the gift of interpretation of tongues, and so I can translate what Brandon said in Farsi back into English so we can understand it. And then Brother Brandon would sit down, and so it would go. Now I ask you, have you ever seen anything like that done in a charismatic church anywhere? No. Nope. And you never will. Guarantee it. You never will. And yet, that is what the gift of tongues would have looked like 2,000 years ago. But you don't see that done today. What do you see? Well, you see something a little bit more like this. Sid Roth and Clarence and McLean. If you've never prayed in tongues, if you follow oh, my instructions, the anointing is here to do the rest. I can't do it for you, but I can tell you how to pray in supernatural languages. So you start speaking like little baby words and say them as fast as you humanly can when I begin to pray. And when the supernatural will become natural as you take a step, Peter, of Raise your hands to the holy God and begin to pray in a language you've never been instructed. If you don't move your tongue and speak, no one else will do anything. Now, I ask you, what does that kind of behavior do to glorify Christ or edify His church? Nothing. Who does that bring attention to? Themselves. The same kind of thing that was going on in the church of Corinth with all the issues that they had is going on today. Uh, when you read through the book, book of 1 Corinthians, so much of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing as a corrective at the, as, uh, to the very same kind of abuses that we see in the charismatic movement today. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. And Sid Roth, I mean, he's not even any good at it. You know, boo boo ha ba da ba ba I mean, he's not even any good at it. I've seen people give a lot better, you know, college try of it than that. But it's, um, yeah. And, and tongues was not gibberish. It was known languages. Every biblical parameter there is on the gift of tongues, they just broke. Every single one of them, they just broke. That's not of God, that's of the flesh. That's of the flesh. 
Have you ever heard, if you ask a charismatic today, well, why do you speak in tongues? You will not hear them say, oh, well, I'm glad you asked. I, I speak in tongues because that's a sign of God's judgment against unbelieving Israel. You'll never hear them say that. Uh, what you will hear them say, though, probably is something more like this. The reason the devil, and that's who it is, does not want you to speak in supernatural languages is because this is the doorway into all of the supernatural. Listen to this. No satanic resistance. Why do I say that? The devil doesn't understand what you're saying. He can't resist you. You got it? So you may have heard a charismatic say something like that. Well, I, I pray in tongues because that's... That's my private prayer language, and Satan can't understand what you're saying when you're praying in the, when you're praying with tongues, because you're praying in the tongues of angels, you see, and Satan can't understand the tongues of angels. Does that make any sense? What is Satan? He's an angel. He's a fallen angel. So if you want to pray in some language that Satan does not understand, then the tongues of angels would be the last language I would recommend you praying in. That doesn't make any sense. That's what he is. So this is just nonsense. And, and for people, uh, and I, I don't mean to mock here, but a lot of people, I've heard people say this too, well, I, I pray in tongues, but I don't do it in church. It's just this thing between me and the Lord. I do it in my private prayer closet. Maybe you've had, heard some people say this. Pray in tongues in my private prayer time, private prayer closets, just between me and the Lord. Here's the problem I have with that, one of the problems. For what reason, what purpose does God give spiritual gifts in the first place? Like generally speaking, what are spiritual gifts for? What do they do? To edify the body. To edify the body. They are not for our own private use. They're not for our own private use. If you have... You know, people say, well, I use it in my own private prayer closet. We don't do that with any of the other spiritual gifts. If, if you have the gift of mercy, do you go into your private prayer closet and show yourself mercy? No. We laugh at that, right? So, why, again, why do we carve out an exception for the gift of tongues? doesn't make any sense. Gift, all the spiritual gifts are given for the edification of the body. They are not for our own private use. Now, uh, I want us to look at this question. Are there apostles today? Are there apostles today? Well, to be in, a, and when I say apostle, we're referring to the apostles of Christ, that office of being an apostle. Are there apostles today, apostles of Christ, people, men who hold that office? Well, to be an apostle of Christ, you had to meet three requirements. Really, you had to meet four. The first requirement, you had to be a man, but so assuming you meet that requirement. You had to meet three others. Number one, you had to be a first-person eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You had to see Jesus raised from the dead. And dear friends, there are none of those guys around anymore. They're long gone. They've been dead for almost 2,000 years. No first-person eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus Christ. Number two, you had to be directly appointed by Christ to be an apostle. You didn't run a campaign. Okay, you didn't go down to the local print shop in Jerusalem, have a bunch of campaign signs printed up saying, vote for me, your next apostle. No, you had to be directly appointed by Christ to be an apostle. And number three, you had to have the ability to perform the signs and wonders of an apostle. 
heal the sick, raise the dead. And dear friends, there is not a person alive on the planet anywhere today who has that gift, who has that ability. There's not anybody alive anywhere on the planet today who meets even one of these requirements, much less all three of them. There are no more apostles today, period, period, end of discussion. No more apostles today. There are no more apostles today. Uh, there are no more apostolic gifts today because the apostolic gifts, the sign gifts, were revelatory in nature. They revealed new information that had not yet been revealed. And revelation is not going on any longer today. Now, what do I mean by that? Revelate. There's a difference between revelation and illumination. Revelation is the revealing of new information that up until the point of it being revealed had not been revealed. Okay, that's revelation. That's not happening anymore today. When people, you hear people say, oh, I got revelation on this. Well, no, you didn't. What may have happened is if you may have gotten illumination. Illumination is when the Holy Spirit of God illumines the meaning of what is already written in God's Word, helps us to understand God's Word and appropriate God's Word. Illumination. Illumination is happening today. Revelation is not. Okay? And here's a question, too, that I have for all the charismatics out there. Uh, if all of the apostolic gifts are still in operation today, then where's the guy with the gift of healing? Where's that guy? You know what, dear friends? I've been in churches all around the world, 26 different countries all over the world. And it does not matter where I am, what culture I'm in. When I go into a, a good, doctrinally sound, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, you know what I find? I find people with the gift of teaching. I find people with the gift of mercy, with the gift of exhortation. I find with people with the gift of hospitality. Where's the person with the gift of healing? Where's that guy? If you can show me even one person anywhere on the planet who has that gift, I will eat my crutch. Does not exist. If you have the gift of teaching, you're to be using that gift regularly in the church, right? If you have the gift of mercy, you're to be using that gift regularly in the church. That's what, they're, that's what spiritual gifts are for. Where's, where's the guy with the gift of healing? Where is he? If the Holy Spirit of God distributes the spiritual gifts among the body as He wills to do, and we know He does that from 1 Corinthians 12, then where is He? You would think every church would have at least one of them. Nobody has that gift today. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Am I saying that God no longer heals people today? I'm not saying that. I believe that God not only can, but does on occasion, it's not common, but on occasion does physically heal people today. But that is not the same thing as someone possessing the gift of healing. Does that make sense? Two totally different things. We're talking about apples and oranges. When God heals somebody today, He just does it because it's His sovereign will to do so and He does it. But that's not the same thing as someone possessing the gift of healing. Two totally different things. Okay. Now, uh, I want us to move on. Uh, I want us to talk real briefly about spiritual warfare. Uh, watch, watch this from Creflo Dollar. I, I don't know all the 
stuff that's going on in your life, but I know a God who has given us the power, and if we will release our authority in faith, we can see things change today. It don't take another two or three months. It takes you getting mad at the devil, mad at the circumstance, mad at the sickness, mad at the lack, and say, I will not take this no more. You don't say, no, dear Mr. Devil. You go and you say, Devil, in the name of Jesus, I done put up with you the last 10 years. Now, my Bible tells me that life is not supposed to be like that. And according to this scripture, and according to that scripture, and over here in this book, and over here in that book, this is how my life is supposed to be. Therefore, in the name of Jesus, I take my authority that I already have, and I command this to be in my life. And I rebuke you, I bind you, I, 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 I arrest you, I lock you up, I put you in chains, you get out of my life. Wow, pretty impressive. So according to Creflo Dollar and the other spirit, modern spiritual warfare experts, if you want to do spiritual warfare, then you need to rebuke Satan, bind Satan. Actually, it's probably a, a good idea that you bind him first before you rebuke him because you wouldn't want to rebuke an unbound Satan. So, so bind him first, tie him up first, then you can rebuke him and do all this stuff. Does that make any sense? You know, all these people going around binding Satan, somebody sure keeps letting him back out. You know, who's a fellow who keeps letting him out? Maybe you ought to go find him and bind him first and then go bind Satan. <laughs> You know, because the rascal just keeps getting loose for all these people going around binding him all the time. And my Bible says that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It doesn't sound very bound to me, does it to you? Now, one day he'll be bound, but not yet. And none of us is going to do it. There's an interesting passage of Scripture in, in Jude. Next to the last book in the, in the New Testament, Jude writes... And really the whole book of Jude is talking about false teachers. But Jude says this in verse 8. He says, Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Jude is talking about false teachers. And Jude is saying they revile angelic majesties and they, they revile the things that they do not understand. Uh, and he says, it's interesting, he says, Michael the archangel had this dispute uh, over the body of Moses with Satan. And notice that Michael the archangel did not dare pronounce a railing accusation against Satan. Think about that. If Rather, he said, the Lord rebuke you. If Michael the archangel would not rebuke Satan, it's probably a pretty good idea you and I not try to do it. Okay, We don't have that ability, dear ones. People who go around binding Satan and rebuking Satan, reviling angelic majesties, you know, that's a sign of a false teacher. Did you see the movie War Room? <coughs> See the movie, just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you saw War Room. Good number of you. You remember that scene in War Rooms, kind of like the pinnacle of the movie, where the Priscilla Shire, what, I don't remember her name in the movie, her character, but anyway, you know, her marriage was falling apart, her husband was a jerk, and, you know, just kind of things in the house falling apart, and, 
and she just had enough of it, right? And she got all mad and she stormed out of the house and she started rebuking Satan saying, Satan, you've, you know, you've caused enough damage in my home and my life and you're not welcome here anymore. I rebuke you. Get out of my home. Remember that? Remember that scene? That's what false teachers do. Dear friends, there should never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, ever, and just in case I'm not clear, ever be an occasion in which you feel a need to talk to Satan. Don't ever talk to Satan. No. No. I'm amazed at people going around talking to Satan. We don't have the ability to bind him or rebuke him. But you know what we do have? We have prayer. We have access to the one who actually does have power over Satan. So don't go around binding and rebuking Satan and demons. Pray to the one who actually can do those things. So real spiritual warfare, it's not binding and rebuking Satan, breaking generational curses. That's another, that's another hoax. Um, I deal with that in, in, this, in these little flash drives. I have a whole series on that. Uh, real spiritual warfare. You know where spiritual warfare happens? Spiritual warfare takes place, especially on Sunday morning, when your pastor gets up to preach the Word of God. That's spiritual warfare. Real spiritual warfare is not a battle for territory. It's not trying to take back territory from Satan. It's a battle for truth. It's a battle for men's minds. It's a battle for the truth of God's Word. That's when spiritual warfare takes place. So if you want to do spiritual warfare, pray for your pastor before and during and while he preaches. Pray, lift him up as he prepares and preaches God's Word. Heavenly tourism. All these people claim to have been to heaven and they want to tell you all about their trips to heaven. Heaven tourism, big business nowadays. Few of the more popular heavenly tourists out there. Jesse Duplantis says he went to heaven on a cable car, no less. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. Roberts Liarden says he went to heaven. He was he went to heaven before he was he, he went to heaven three times before he was twelve years old. So quite the uh, frequent flyer there to heaven. A lot of uh, frequent flyer miles racked up in his trips to heaven. Uh, he says that in heaven there's a warehouse full of body parts. And if, if, he said if people down here on earth only knew that God had all these brand new body parts up in this warehouse up in heaven, that uh, you know, if you've got a quiver in your liver or you've got some body part that's not working right, then you just tell God about it and you claim it and God will go and look up your liver or whatever on, on the shelf and take it off and somehow download it to you. Don Piper, it's not a word of faith, not charismatic, at least not theoretically. Don Piper's Baptist, Southern Baptist. Uh, Don Piper had a car accident, truck accident, when he, or car accident, I guess, when he was um, in southeast Texas back in 1989 and had an impact on a bridge, and he says that he died, and he went, and he spent 90 minutes in heaven, wrote a book by the same title, 90 Minutes in Heaven. Colton Burpo undoubtedly is the most popular of the heavenly tourists. Colton Burpo says that he went to heaven when he was uh, 
a little boy. He had some kind of a medical emergency. He had surgery, and he says that while he was having surgery, he went to heaven. Uh, Colton Burpo and his father, who was a pastor, tragically, they wrote a book entitled Heaven is for Real. Heaven is for Real. I take offense at the title of that book. I don't need a four-year-old kid to tell me heaven is for real. The Bible already tells me that, so thanks anyway, but got it. Bill Weiss didn't go to heaven. He says he went to hell. He spent 23 minutes in hell, wrote a book by that title. Uh, one of the things that bothers me about his account is he says that Jesus took him to hell after he was a Christian, took him to hell so he could see how horrible it was. Why? would Jesus take somebody to the very place from which he died to save them? Mary Baxter, well, she's been to both places. She's been to heaven and to hell. She says that the belly of hell is three miles around in cir circumference. It's uh, 17 miles deep, so a uh, pretty deep place. She, sp she spent 30 days in hell, 10 days in heaven, so she kind of got the shorter end of that stick. She said there's a 40-foot-long piano in heaven. That's a big piano. And she said that she saw a 70-foot-tall angel brandishing a 6-foot-long sword. Now, 6-foot-long sword, that's a big sword. Until you remember that it was held by a 70-foot-tall angel. So if you do the ratios on that, uh, that would be like me standing up here with a 6-inch buck knife. You know, so really not all that impressive, so maybe math was not her strongest subject in school. <laughs> Todd Bentley has been to heaven. Now, Todd Bentley is undoubtedly the most deranged of all the individuals I've come across. I honestly, truly believe he's demon-possessed. I honestly believe he's, the man is genuinely demon-possessed. Todd Bentley says that he went to Heaven found himself on an operating table in heaven. I'm not real sure why heaven would have a need for an operating table, but apparently there's one up there. And uh, he said there were four angels there, two on each side dressed in gleaming white, he said. And then they proceeded to strap him down, feet and hands, so that he couldn't move. And then they got out a miter saw. Can't make this stuff up. They got out a miter saw and they cut him open from the base of his neck all the way down past his belly button. All of his insides gushed out and then they started stuffing him full of white boxes. <laughs> I report, you decide. Um, but there's a lot of problem with, problems with all of these accounts, okay? There are inter-contradictions. In other words, what one heavenly tourist reports about heaven contradicts what another heavenly tourist reports about heaven. So logically, they cannot both be true, right? There are intra-contradictions. Not only do they contradict one another, a lot of times they even contradict themselves. They can't keep their own story straight. There are biblical problems, theological problems, and then briefly we will say something about their motives. Now I'm going to skip over some of this, uh, give you just one example of some of the inter-contradictions. Don Piper reports in his book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, that people in heaven do not have wings. They don't have wings. Colton Burpo, however, reports that people in heaven do have wings. Well, somebody's not telling the truth, right? And there's multiple examples of this. Inter-contradictions. Now, let me show you an intra-contradiction. 
Watch this video clip from Colton Burpo as he's being interviewed by Megyn Kelly on Fox News April the 8th, 2014. The date here is important. April the 8th, 2014. Megyn Kelly asked Colton Burpo if he remembers what he experienced when he was in heaven when he was just a little boy, basically a, a toddler, uh, not even quite four years old. Watch this. Colton, you're 14 now. Do you still have a conscious memory of this experience? Well, of my hospital stay and all the events leading up to it, um, that's a little foggy, but my experience in heaven is very vivid. Okay. He doesn't remember much about being in the hospital. That's understandable. I mean, he wasn't even four years old yet. But he says his memories of heaven was are still, quote, very vivid. Now, watch this clip from just three weeks later as he is asked the exact same question on TBN. Do you remember those first visions that you saw of heaven? Well, I will have to say, um, it, my, my thoughts of heaven aren't as crisp as they used to be. Um, it's been 10, 11 years since it's happened. So um, there's been a lot of time in between that. I mean, it's hard to remember what you did when you were four. Yeah. <laughs> so, um... so Colton Burpo on April the 8th says his memory of heaven is still, quote, very vivid. But just three weeks later, it appears as though his memory kind of took a nosedive and the memory just aren't as crisp as they used to be. Forgive me if I do not believe him. I mean, we're only talking a difference here of three weeks. He's even wearing the same shirt. He's a liar. Colton Burpo is a liar. Here's another liar. Don Piper. Don Piper is a liar. Uh, this from Don Piper on, in his book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, Don Piper says this, I did not see God. I saw no luminous glow that might have indicated His divine presence. Don Piper says that when he went to heaven, he saw a lot of, peop a lot of people that he knew. He saw his old high school buddy who died at an early age. He saw uh, his Sunday school teachers. He saw his great-grandmother, Hattie. He says that he saw his grandfather, whom he describes as still having his, quote, big banana nose. So he saw a lot of people that he knew in heaven. But there's one person he's very clear about he did not see. He said he did not see God. This was on page 33 of his book that came out in the year 2004. Now watch this video clip of Don Piper seven years later, 2011. It seems as though his story has changed just a little bit. They're drinking that in and, and, and absorbing how great the mansions were. And then I began to look up through the gate and I could see this kind of pinnacle in the middle of the city. It's kind of a hill high and lifted up. There's a river flowing down the side of this. Well, it's the river of life and it's coming down the side of this mountain or hill, if you will. And at the top of that is the brightest light I've ever seen. And I know who that is. It's the Lord high and lifted up. This is his city. Now, wait a minute. On page 33 in his book, he said he did not see God. Not only did he not see God, did not even see a luminous glow that would have indicated where he was, but now he says he did see God. Way down there up on top of the hill, he said it was the brightest light I'd ever seen, and I knew who that was. It was the Lord high and lifted up. Which is it? 
the title of your book is 90 Minutes in Heaven and you can't remember whether or not you saw God? That's a pretty big deal. He's a liar. He's a liar. There was another boy who also claimed to have gone to heaven. His name is Alex Malarkey. And, and I, he, he can't help, he can't help his, his name. But um, Alex, when Alex was seven years old, he was in the car with his father, who was dri- obviously driving. They had a car accident. His father was unhurt. Alex is quadriplegic. Alex made the claim that when they had the car accident, he went to heaven. And his father heard this from his son, fabricated a story around it, wrote a book entitled The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. Lifeway sold these books. Lifeway sold all these heaven tourism books. But something happened to Alex Malarkey now about five years ago. You know what happened to Alex when he was was about 14 years old, 14, 15 years old? You know what happened to Alex? He got saved. He got saved. And he did exactly what you would expect a Christian to do. He came out and he told the truth. And he said, I didn't go to heaven. I never went to heaven. The story is made up. His father would have nothing of it because his father was making a lot of money off of selling these books, aided by Lifeway. Alex, through his mother, Beth, started trying to get the word out, started trying to tell everybody that this didn't happen, they don't stand behind the book. She contacted the book's publisher. They would have nothing of it. She contacted Lifeway. They didn't want to hear it. She finally reached out to Phil Johnson at Grace Community Church. She reached out to me because she had seen some of my stuff. She told us about it. And so we start trying to help her to get the word out. I'm I'm contacting Lifeway. I used to be on the board of Lifeway years ago. used to be on the board. I have Tom Rainer's email address. Long story short, I kept pressing Tom, why are you selling these books? You know they're not real. Why, you know, do you believe these books? He hem-hauled around and never would plant his flag. And I, I, I sent him a long article that I wrote about the theology of all this stuff. He ignored it, passed me off to Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer ignored it. And I finally said, you don't believe me? Here's Beth Malarkey's contact information. You know Beth Malarkey the mother of the boy whose book you're selling. This isn't true. They're trying to get the truth out. And they ignored me. They ignored me. This was in May of 2014. In January of 2015, the news finally broke in the secular media. The secular media picked it up. And for for a day there, for like almost 48 hours, this was the biggest story in the news. Boy who claimed to have been to heaven recants his story. 
made huge worldwide news. Lifeway comes out with a statement and they said, upon learning about Alex Malarkey's recantation, we have decided to pull his books from the shelves. Upon learning? That's a lie. That's a lie and I can prove it. The only conclusion that we're left with is that for Lifeway, money was more important to them than the spiritual well-being of their customers. Money was more important to them than the glory of God. They'll be held accountable one day. Another problem with all of these accounts, all of these accounts add to Scripture. All of them add to Scripture. I'll give you one example of how these accounts add to Scripture from Colton Burpo. Colton Burpo tells us in his book, Heaven is for Real, that people have wings. People have wings. Did you know that? I didn't know that because the Bible doesn't say anything about people in heaven having wings. Colton Burpo also tells us that the angel Gabriel sits at the Father's left hand. Did you know that? I didn't know that because the Bible doesn't say anything about Gabriel sitting at the Father's left hand. He also tells us that Jesus is riding around in heaven on a multicolored horse. Did you know that? I didn't know that because the Bible doesn't say anything about Jesus riding around on a multicolored horse. Colton Burpo also informs us that the Holy Spirit is blue. The Holy Spirit is blue. Did you know that? I didn't know that because the Bible doesn't say anything about the Holy Spirit being blue. What is the Holy Spirit? A smurf? So we've got all this... <laughs> We've got all this new information about heaven that is not recorded in Scripture. Now, if it is true, theoretically, if it is true, all these details that these people are giving us about heaven, if they're really going to heaven, they're coming back and giving us accurate information of what heaven is like. If people really have wings, if the Holy Spirit really is blue and Jesus is galloping around in heaven on a multicolored horse, then theoretically, we should add all of that information to this book. We should add that right here. If that's really the way heaven is, we should add that to this book. There's just one problem with that. This book says do not add to this book. We are not to add to Scripture. We are not to add to Scripture. We are to take nothing away from it, nor are we to add anything to it. And such warnings can be found in both the Old and New Testament. Take your pick. Oh yeah, well that warning in Revelation that's just talking about not adding to the book of Revelation, but we could add to the other books. No, we can't do that because we believe in what's called the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, that all of Scripture is fully inspired, fully theonoustos, God-breathed, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-17, all of it. If you add to one part of it, you've added to all of it. We are not to add to the words of God not to add to the words of God. I want us to look, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, 
was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which man is not permitted to speak. The Apostle Paul was speaking of himself. He was the man who was caught up into the third heaven. Now you may be wondering, well, why does he refer to himself in the third person and rather than the first person like we would normally do? The reason Paul referred to himself in the third person is because that is how humbled he was by what he had experienced. He was so humbled by his experience that he would not even refer to himself in the, in the first person. He used the third person. And even with that level of humility, God still gave him a thorn in the flesh to humble him even further to keep him from exalting himself, Paul writes. And notice too, what do we know about what the Apostle Paul saw and heard in heaven? Nothing. We have no idea what he saw. We have no idea what he heard. Why? Because he said he heard words that are inexpressible that man is not permitted to speak. Dear friends, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the man who wrote, you know, a third, depending on who you think wrote the book of Hebrews, a third to a half of the New Testament. A lot of the New Testament. Paul wrote it. This is the Apostle Paul. He would not tell us what he was allowed to see and heard and what he, what he saw and heard in heaven. If the Apostle Paul was not allowed to tell us what he saw and heard in heaven, then I seriously doubt that any other Yahoo would be allowed to do so. And notice, the Apostle Paul didn't even want to talk about this. He didn't want to talk about it. But his apostolic authority was being questioned by some back in Corinth, by false teachers. They were questioning him. Are you really apostle? You can't trust the Apostle Paul. You can't trust him. He's not a real apostle. And, and so it's, it's almost like he had finally just grown weary of it and had enough of it. It's almost like he says, you question whether or not I'm an apostle? I know a man. He didn't even want to talk about it. Contrast that level of humility with all these other people, with Jesse Duplantis and Colton Burpo and Don Piper, and they just can't wait to tell you about everything they saw, everything they heard while they were in heaven. They go on speaking tours. They make careers out of their trip to heaven. Anybody ever tells you they've been to heaven, don't believe them. Don't believe them. They are either seriously self-deluded or they're flat-out liars. More often than not, the latter is the case. They're just liars. Something very important is missing from all of these accounts. You can read 90 Minutes in Heaven from cover to cover, and I have. You can read Heaven is for Real from cover to cover, and I have. You can watch the movies that were made off of both of these books from start to finish, and you know what? I have. You know what you'll hear? You'll hear all about Grandfather's Big Banana Nose. You'll hear all about how Colton Burpo says Jesus helped him with his homework in Heaven. I'm not real sure Heaven would be Heaven if you had to do homework in it, but... Apparently you do. So you hear all this just stuff about heaven. But you know what you won't hear? You will not hear the gospel. The gospel, it's not there. Not even tangentially. Not only is the gospel not there, actually universalism is taught in these books, or at least in the movies. It explicitly taught in heaven is for real. Universalism. So let me get this straight. You've been to heaven. 
you've been granted the magnanimous privilege of going to heaven, but you don't bother to tell anybody how to get there? They're liars. If they had been to heaven, if they had, and they had been granted some privilege like that, something like what the Apostle Paul did, if they had, you know what? They would be doing nothing but preaching the gospel. They would be so overwhelmed by the urgency of the gospel and coming judgment and the holiness of God, they would be doing nothing but preaching the gospel. They wouldn't be wasting their time telling you what the grandfather's nose looked like. false teachers. Whoops, wrong slide. Something else that we can't really ignore, it's, you have to be careful in assigning motives to people, but let's be honest, we can't ignore the obvious. There's a lot of money to be made in going to heaven. These books have sold multiple, multiple millions of copies. I need to update these numbers. It, Heaven is for Real now, I think, is now over 20 million copies. Let's say they get a dollar off each book. Let's say they get 50 cents off each book. A lot of money to be made in going to heaven. I don't even count the movies and their speaking tours. This is Jesse Duplantis' parsonage. I took this picture, Jesse Duplantis' parsonage. Uh, that's my mirror right there in the corner. 35,000 square feet. Not 3,500, 35,000 square foot parsonage. His ministry pays for this. He doesn't even pay for the light bill. A lot of money to be made in going to heaven. All right, I want us to move on now, hearing from heaven. How do you know if God is speaking to you today? How do you know if God is speaking to you? How can you, how can you tell when God is speaking to you? How do you know His voice? A lot of people today going around saying, well, God spoke to me. God spoke to me and He told me to tell you that you need to do such and such. Pastor, God spoke to me and He told me to tell you that our church needs to go this direction. Lots of people claiming that God speaks to them. Have you ever heard people say this and you, you hear it so much and after a while you start wondering, what's wrong with me? You know, I, I don't hear God talk to me like that. Are these people more spiritual than I am? Have they got a closer walk with God than I do? What, what, what's wrong with me? Well, let's talk about this a little bit. Okay, I'll give you a, a couple of examples of God supposedly speaking to people. This from Jesse Duplantis, Voice of the Covenant magazine. He says, The Lord showed me a new way to look at Matthew 17, verse 20. Now, I have this word highlighted, new, uh, new highlighted for a reason. Dear friends, if you're reading the Bible and all of a sudden you think you have discovered a hidden meaning, to a particular passage of Scripture that has escaped the attention of every other Holy Spirit indwelt believer for the last 2,000 years except you, you're wrong. 
okay? I don't mean it ugly, but you're wrong. If you think you have discovered some hidden meaning that nobody else has ever seen before except you, you need to take another look at it. But that's what Jesse Duplantis claims happened to him. He writes, he, referring to God, showed me that most people preach on the properties of the seed, but the Lord gave me a deeper understanding on this verse when he told me, I put a dimension, this is Matthew 17, faith the size of a mustard seed. Uh, God said, I put a dimension on the size of the mustard seed, but I did not put a dimension on the size of the mountain. I didn't understand, said Jesse. Look, God explained, I made sure you understood the dimension of the faith was small like a mustard seed, but I never set a limit on the size of the mountain. Why do you think I didn't set a limit on the size of the mountain, but limited faith to the size of a grain of mustard seed? I still didn't have the answer. Here comes God's answer. Because if you use any more, you'd blow me off my throne. Dear friends, I would submit to you that the only one who's going to be blown off of his throne is Jesse Duplantis by God. Unreal. Just unreal. But this is a, let me show you this from Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels writes in his book, The Power of a Whisper. Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek, or well, former now. He says, one day a few summers ago, I decided to spend an afternoon alone with God. I hopped on a boat, headed out on the lake, prepared to hear meaningful words from heaven. I sat there for an hour and heard nothing. Sat there for a second hour and heard precisely nothing. Partway through hour number three, I thought, I love being on the water, but what's with the silence, God? I was going through a tough time at Willow Creek and desperately needed a little encouragement from above. Just as I was ready to haul up the anchor and motor back toward the harbor, I saw a Bud Light beer can float by. I stood there staring at the can, wondering, is this a message from God? If so, what could it mean? Am I supposed to drink Bud Light? Am I supposed to tell my congregation not to drink Bud Light? Is there a message inside the can? This is a pastor, was a pastor, and he thinks God is sending him messages through Bud Light beer cans? Unbelievable. He was a pastor of one of the largest churches in the country. Lifeway, again, imagine that, sold his books. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. How do you make sense of that? There's no way to make sense out of this. It's ridiculous. Here's this book. Now, I want to show you another example. Now, ladies, I'm going to have to ask you to, to bear with me again here. Okay? Uh-oh. Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. Far and away, the hottest-selling devotional, uh, devotional book on the market. It is light years ahead of everything else. Huge. Uh, and it, it sold so many copies now. There's spinoffs of Jesus Calling. They've got an updated Jesus Calling. They've got a Jesus Calling for teenagers, Jesus Calling for, you know, Jesus Calling mothers. I'm waiting for the Jesus Calling little white cripple boys, and I'll have to, I'll get that copy, I guess. But this is no ordinary devotional book. This is, this is something very different. Why am I so concerned about this book? Well, I'm going to show you excerpts 
directly copied and pasted out of the introduction to her book. Okay, No editorial on my part, word for word. Here we go. She says, During the same year, in 92, I began reading God Calling, a devotional book by two anonymous listeners. These women practiced waiting quietly in God's presence, pencils and papers in hand, recording the messages they received from Him. This was the inspiration of Jesus Calling. God Calling was a book, is a book, that was written back in the 1930s. I have a copy of it. And it was written by two anonymous female mystics. We don't even know their names. But these women claim to practice the presence of God. And they wanted to hear from God, so they practiced hearing from Him. And after a lot of practice, it's like they finally tuned in to just the right frequency. And when they hit just the right frequency, God started calling them and they wrote down what He was saying. This was the inspiration for Jesus calling Sarah Young. Sarah Young says, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. I'm really troubled by that statement. The Bible was not enough for Sarah Young. And you know what? So many people today have that same attitude, that the Bible's just not enough. I've got to have something more. I've got to hear God speak to me apart from the Bible. I've got to have more. Here's why I take issue with that. For all these people that say that the Bible is not enough, here's the question I have for them. Have you mastered this book? Have you squeezed every drop of truth that there is to be squeezed out of this book. You have mastered it. There's nothing else that you can learn from it. You've exhausted it. And if the answer to that question is no, and it is, then please don't tell me the Bible's not enough. You don't even understand what you've got in black and white right in front of you. Don't tell me the Bible's not enough. But it wasn't enough for Sarah Young. It's not enough seemingly for many people today. She says, I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believed He was saying. Houston, we have a problem. Sarah Young, just like the ladies who wrote God Calling, she tuned into just the right frequency. And when she hit just the right frequency, Jesus started calling her and she started writing down what He was saying. If that is indeed what was happening with Sarah Young and Jesus started calling her, Jesus started speaking to her and with pen in hand she's writing down what He said to her. You know what Sarah Young is doing? You know what she's doing? She's writing Scripture. That's what she's doing. She's writing Scripture. Because whatever Jesus said to her should be just as authoritative as any verse in this book. And by extension, dear friends, all these people who say, God spoke to me. God spoke to me and said this. God spoke to me and said that. God spoke to me and said, quote, da-da-da-da-da. Whatever God said to you, theoretically, should be just as authoritative as any verse in this book. So whatever God said to you, we need to add to this book. But there's just one problem with that. This book says do not add to this book. Well, yeah, well, well, God spoke in the Bible and, and it was really authoritative, but it's not the same thing when He speaks to us outside of the Bible. You know, when, when He talks to people individually and gives them messages, that, that's not 
That's not authoritative like the Bible is. Why not? Why isn't it? Dear friends, God cannot speak less authoritatively on one occasion than He does on another. Not that He won't. He can't. If God is speaking, God is speaking. And whatever He says should be just as authoritative as John 3.16. So whatever He says, we should add to this book. God cannot speak in the Bible and really, really, really mean it. But when He speaks to us today outside of the Bible, He still means it, but He doesn't mean it quite as much as He meant it here. How does that work? If God is speaking, God is speaking. So, let me, uh, I'm going to, for time's sake, I'm going to pass on that. Um, well, well, Justin, what about, what about my sheep hear my voice? Because I, I hear this verse used all the time. In fact, you can pick up any book in any Christian bookstore about how to hear the voice of God, you know, various titles, variations of that, how to hear God's voice. Without exception, they all go to John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's God speaking to us, right, outside of Scripture, hearing the voice of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, right? No, wrong. That's not what that's talking about. Let's look at it in context. Let's begin in verse 26. Jesus says, But you do not believe me because you're not clever enough to figure it out. You do not believe me because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is not talking about God speaking to you, telling you where to go to college, or what job to take, or where to go have lunch. How, what a horrible trivialization that is of a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. What is the voice that Jesus is talking about? The voice of which Jesus is speaking is the voice of the shepherd calling his sheep to himself. In salvation, this is conversion. This is the new birth. This is not Jesus telling you where to go have lunch. What a horrible trivialization of a majestic passage of Scripture. These sheep out there, lost sheep, wandering around in the pastures, grazing, eating their grass, minding their own business, and all of a sudden they hear the voice of the shepherd and their head perks up and they see the shepherd and they go to him. That's what he's talking about. And he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And I don't mean to get on eternal security here, but just real quickly because it's so beautiful. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those people who wonder, oh, I'm not sure if once saved, always saved. I don't know if I believe in eternal security. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And as if his hand was not strong enough, and it is. But as if it was not strong enough, then what does he do? He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
So Jesus is holding us in His hand, and then He wraps, as it were, the Father's hand around that of His own. Ain't no one getting through that. But we're told today that prayer is a two-way street. You ever heard this? Prayer is a two-way street. So you pray to God and you talk to Him and then you listen for Him to talk back in that still, small voice. And I heard this all the time growing up. And maybe you've done this because I've done it myself. But we hear this and this is what we do. We've got something going on in our lives. We've got some decision, big decision that we've got to make and we don't know the right thing to do. And so we've, we hear that prayer is a two-way street. So we get real honest about this, real sincere. The television's turned off. Kids are in bed and you're in your study or in your bedroom or whatever and you, you go to the Lord and you pray to Him. And you talk to the Lord and you say, Lord, this is what's going on. It's, I don't know what to do. I need, I need some direction for you. I, I just don't know what I should do. And so, Lord, speak to me. Tell me. What should I do? And we get real quiet and we listen real hard. And then, inevitably, what happens? A thought, right, just kind of, just kind of flashes through our heads, right? We have these thoughts. We have these little shooter thoughts, and we hear this voice, and we think, oh, oh, was that you, Lord? Or was that me? Was that you, or was that the pizza I ate tonight? I mean, how do you know? How do you know when it's God speaking to you? Dear friends, you won't find anything like that modeled in Scripture. Nowhere. When God spoke, He was crystal clear. People knew exactly what was being said. Even in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit spoke, very clear, very precise, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. There was none of this, oh, is that you, Lord, or is that me? You, you won't find that in Scripture. Nowhere. Nowhere. Well, how does God speak to us today? Well, let's go to the text. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says this, God, after He spoke, spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. The writer of Hebrews says that in the old days, days gone by, in the Old Testament, God spoke in many different portions and in many different ways. Indeed, He did. God spoke to Moses up on a mountain through the storm and thunder. God spoke to Elijah through a still, small voice, which, by the way, was not some inner impression. It was still an audible voice. In Numbers chapter 22, God even made a donkey talk. So God did indeed speak in many different portions and in many different ways. But in these last days, something has changed. Has God changed? No. God has not changed, but His revelation has progressed, culminating in His Son, Jesus Christ. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. 
Friends, Jesus is the final speaking of God. The final speaking of God. Everything that God has to say to us, He has said in His Son, Jesus Christ, and we have a perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient record of that in His Word. Jesus is the final speaking of God. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't want you to think, oh, Justin told us that God doesn't speak to us anymore today. That's not at all what I'm saying. God does speak to us today right here. This is how God speaks to us. Well, well, well God doesn't tell me in the Bible where to go to college you know, or, or who to marry or what job to take. How do I know God's will for my life? How do I know God's will for my life? Dear friends, do you want to know how to know God's will for your life? Here's how you know God's will for your life. I'm going to try to simplify it and, maybe, and save you a lot of time and a lot of heartache and a lot of confusion. Here's how you know God's will for your life. Read, study, and obey His Word. Read, study, and obey His Word. And if you're not doing that, nothing else matters anyway. Read, study, and obey His Word. But if you've got some decision that you need to make, you've got something going on, you're not sure what the right thing to do is or you know, something like that, and, and you're needing some direction, you need to know God's will, here's what you do. Pray for wisdom. Now, if you're not reading and studying God's Word, don't bother praying for wisdom. You know, when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and in abundance. If you're not reading and studying God's Word first, don't bother asking for wisdom from God. He's not going to give it to you. But if you are, reading and studying His Word, pray for wisdom, Seek some godly counsel. Proverbs tells us that. It says there, there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel, safety in a multitude of counsel. Seek some godly counsel. Men, you got something going on in your life? Go to some godly men that you know that are walking with the Lord and, and tell them, you know, I, I got this going on in my life and, and um, what do you think? You know, ask for their wisdom. Ask for their counsel. I have some men in my life that I do that with. Something will come up in my ministry, and, you know, I'll go to them. I'll seek their counsel. What do you think? And th that's been a, a tremendous blessing for me in my life and my ministry. Ladies, if you have a, a godly husband, go to him. If you don't have a godly husband, go to some other ladies that you know are walking with the Lord, or maybe go to the elders in your church. Uh, seek some godly counsel. So read, study, and Read and study God's Word, obey God's Word, pray for wisdom, seek godly counsel, and then Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 it. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, lean not unto your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him, and He might direct your paths. He'll direct your paths if He's got nothing better to do. He will direct your paths. How does He do that? I don't have the slightest idea. I just know He does. Dear friends, He spoke the universe into existence. I think He can direct our paths. Read, study God's Word, pray for wisdom, seek godly counsel, trust in the Lord, and just do something. Just make a wise decision and do it. 
You don't have to worry, oh, well, if I choose this, when God really wanted me to choose this, then everything's just going to fall apart and unravel, you know, and fall apart like a row of dominoes. No, relax. Relax. He spoke the universe into existence. He can direct your paths. Dear friends, if you want to hear God speak to you, there is one way, I guarantee you, you will hear God speak. Read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak to you audibly, read it out loud. 100% guaranteed you will hear Him speak. God's Word is sufficient. God's Word is sufficient. Now, um, I want to move out of this session and go into the final session, which deals with healing. And I, I know you're thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to be here all night. I just want to hit a few high points here, a couple high points. I know we're, we're running low on time. But um, physical healing, is it always God's will? Is it always God's will to be physically healed? Of course, the faith preachers say that it is that it is always God's will to be healed. Now, if you begin with the premise that it is always God's will to be physically healed and a person prays for that healing for days, weeks, months, years, some people for decades, but the healing does not come, then the question must be asked, whose fault is it? By definition, it cannot be God's fault, right? Because He's perfect. So the only other one to whom to look is the one who is sick. It's his fault. It's her fault because doesn't have enough faith, has some secret unconfessed sin in his or her life, hasn't given enough money to the ministry, hasn't sown that seed so you can reap a harvest. Or maybe that person's not even saved. But it is the sick person's fault. Watch this from Kenneth Copeland. Well, I don't understand why God healed them and He won't heal me. Could it be? <laughs> By some stretch of the imagination. Oh, probably not, but could it be? That is your fault, not God's. <laughs> oh, yeah. Say it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lest there be any doubt as to their position. If you begin with the premise that it is always God's will to be healed, and you pray for that healing, but it never comes, then you can wordsmith it all day long. You can pontificate on it till the cows come home but the fault always lies squarely at the foot of the sick believer. There's no other conclusion that you can draw. If you're sick, it's your fault. Your lack of faith, your unconfessed sin, your lack of giving money, or maybe your lack of salvation. It's your fault if you're sick. It's your fault. Healing in the atonement. Now I'm going to have to, I'm, I, they take this from Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Uh, I want to, let's go to it real quick. Um, Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
Now, they teach that primarily from others, but mainly this passage, that physical healing is provided for in the atonement, the work that Jesus did on the cross. Now, we saw last night, they don't believe he paid for our sins on the cross. They believe he paid for our sins in hell, but we talked about that last night. But they look at these two words that I have highlighted here, griefs and sorrows, and they say that another way to render these two words is as sickness and pain, respectively. So therefore, Jesus bore our sickness. He carried our pain because Jesus bore our sickness. Jesus carried our pain. We should not have to because healing is provided for in the atonement and we can be healed. Well, that ignores the context of the passage. Let's look at the context of the passage just by dealing with the very next verse, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So very clearly, the primary context of Isaiah 53 is not talking about physical healing. It's talking about spiritual healing. Not healing from sickness and disease, but healing from sins. We see that from these two words, transgressions and iniquities. Yet how many times have we heard Benny Hinn or one of these other prosperity preachers say, By his stripes you are healed, so you ought to be physically healed. That's not the primary context. The primary context is healing from sin, not sickness and disease. In fact, read Isaiah 53. Go all the way back to 52, all the way through 53. You'll see sin, transgression. He bore the sins of many, iniquity. That's what the whole thing is talking about. It's not talking about cancer or arthritis. Primary context is healing from sin. Now, what is the answer to our question? Is physical... Ah, wrong slide again. There's a glitch in this PowerPoint. It, just, it literally goes to the wrong slide. What is the answer to our question? Is physical healing provided for in the atonement? I might surprise you with the answer. Yes. Yes. Physical healing is provided for in the atonement. Dear friends, the reason I have cerebral palsy, the reason I have crutches is a result of sin. Not my personal sin, but the sin of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they ate of that fruit, whatever that fruit was, we don't know that it was an apple. It's just what's in the coloring books. Could have been a pomegranate for all we know. But when they, when they ate of that fruit, sin entered the world. So did sickness and disease and ultimately death, physical and spiritual death. So the reason I have cerebral palsy, the reason I'm crippled is because of sin. The reason many of you are wearing eyeglasses right now, that's because of sin. Not your personal sin, but the sin of Adam and Eve. Next time you catch a cold, you can blame Adam and Eve for that. It's just one of the consequences of living in a fallen world. So when Jesus came and died on the cross, He paid for our sins. He also paid for all of the consequences of those sins, one of which is sickness and disease. So yes, physical healing is provided for in the atonement, but... Here's where the prosperity preachers get it very, very wrong. Not all of the benefits of the atonement are promised to be fully realized this side of heaven. Okay? Not all the benefits of the atonement are promised to be fully realized this side of heaven. 
some of the benefits of Jesus' atonement we will not realize until the other side of heaven. And healing from sickness and disease is one of those benefits. Another example of this is a glorified body. A glorified body is also provided for in the atonement. Raise your hand if you've got your glorified body. Nobody here has a glorified body? Why not? It's provided for in the atonement. It's not promised to be realized here. Dear friends, when we die and go to heaven, for all of us who are in Christ, when we die and go to heaven, we're not taking our sickness and disease with us. No more cancer, no more arthritis, no more cerebral palsy, no more muscular dystrophy, no more multiple sclerosis, none of these things. Why? Because our healing has been provided for, bought and paid for with the blood, death, and bodily resurrection of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know what? When we die and go to heaven, I'm really not sure it's even going to cross our minds that we no longer have our sickness and disease. I'm really not sure we're even going to give it a second thought. Because you know why? We're going to have better things to think about. We're going to have better things to think about. Dear friends, we will be in the presence of Christ. We will have perfect worship of, fellowship with, service to the King of kings, the Lord of glory. We will be in the presence of Jesus. And He is the joy and the glory of heaven. He is who makes heaven, heaven. And all these people, I hear so many people who profess to be Christians and they talk about heaven as like this big family reunion. Oh, I can't wait to get to heaven because I want to see grandma and grandpa and I'm, you know, I, we're going to, it's going to be this big family reunion. We're going to walk on streets of gold and all this stuff. Will we? Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we will be reunited with our loved ones. Of course, provided that they were in Christ when they preceded us in death. Yes, we will see them, see them again. But you know what? That's not the joy of heaven. The joy of heaven is Christ. Knowing Him, worshiping Him, being in awe of Him for all of eternity, basking in His majesty for all of eternity. And if your view of heaven is going to have a family reunion, I would submit to you that your view of heaven is far too small. Your view of Christ is far too small. He is the joy and the glory of heaven. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. He is the joy of heaven. What of the biblical record? Can, can we look through the Bible and find examples of people who served the Lord and yet did not walk in perfect health? Absolutely. 
Trophimus was left sick at Miletus. Epaphroditus was sick to the point of death. The Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach and his frequent ailments. Now I find that very interesting. Notice that Paul did not write to Timothy and say, uh, Timothy, go see a faith healer and be sure you sow a seed into his ministry so you can reap a harvest. Take a little wine for your stomach, your frequent ailments. Job. Job is the 800-pound theological gorilla sitting in the living room of the prosperity preachers, none of whom want to admit is there. Job's a problem for the prosperity preachers because here you have a man who is upright and righteous, had done nothing wrong, and yet God still allowed Satan to go and to strike from Job everything that he had, his possessions destroyed, his family dead, his own health deteriorated horrifically. Job suffered like none of us can even imagine. Job's a problem for the faith preachers. But you know what the point of the book of Job is? The point of the book of Job is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. God can do whatever He wants to do. He can do whatever He wants to do. Elisha had a double portion anointing of the great prophet Elijah, yet we read in 2 Kings 13 that Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. Dear friends, it is a matter of biblical record that not everyone who loved the Lord and served Him faithfully walked in perfect divine health. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not up for debate. It's simply a matter of biblical record. And I'll, I'll close with this. Um, I want to show you a picture of a man that I'm, I met. Let's see. A few years ago, uh, this is Rich. Rich lived in Long Island, New York. Rich was born able-bodied, nothing wrong with Rich physically. God saved Rich when he was 19 years old, was converted, and then just a few years later in his early 20s, Rich had a motorcycle accident, and it left him paralyzed. No use of his legs at all, very, very limited use of his arms. And um, Rich lived, and I keep saying past tense because Rich is with the Lord now, as of just a couple years ago. Um, Rich lived with his brother and his sister-in-law, neither of whom were believers. Rich is. Every Sunday morning, Rich would ask his brother and sister-in-law to get him up out of bed, and they'd get him up, they'd bathe him, they'd dress him, and they'd put him in his electric wheelchair and Rich would drive his electric wheelchair five miles one way to church every single Sunday. Even when it was raining, they would put a poncho over him and he would drive his wheelchair five miles one way to church in the rain. The only thing that kept Rich from going to church was if it was snowing and his wheelchair just wouldn't go in the snow. Other than that, he was there. The pastor told me, he said, Rich is the most faithful church member I've got. Rich had bumper stickers on the back of his wheelchair with scripture verses on them. He was quite literally a rolling testimony for Christ. Smile on his face. How many people saw this man Sunday in, Sunday out, 
in his wheelchair with a smile on his face, going to church, Bible verses on the back of his wheelchair. That is a, don't you know what a powerful testimony that was for Christ. Sometimes, dear friends, God is most glorified in us when we suffer. When we are persecuted. When we're sick. And yet through the suffering, through the persecution, through the sickness, we remain faithful to Christ. And we seek to honor Him and glorify Him. Sometimes God is most glorified in us in times like that. Not when we have everything that we want. Not when life is good, when life is hard. And it is also in those hard times that God uses to conform us most into the image of Christ. What did David say in Psalm 119? He said, it is good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Charles Spurgeon said, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. Trials are not meant to be enjoyed. When James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, James did not say, enjoy your trials. That's not what he said. And please don't fall into the trap thinking, well, if I'm going through a trial and I'm not enjoying it, that there's something, you know, I'm just not spiritual enough. No. Trials aren't meant to be enjoyed. That's why they're called trials. He didn't say enjoy your trials. He said count them as joy, knowing that on the other side of that trial, through the trial, and on the other side of it, whether we meet the other side of it and this side of heaven or on the other side of heaven, there will be joy can take it to the bank, there will be joy. Sometimes God is most glorified in us in times like that. So, dear friends, I want to say tonight that if, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you have repented of your sins and trusted Christ, don't let anybody tell you you don't have enough faith to be healed. If you have been granted the faith to be saved, you have certainly got enough faith to be healed. Being saved is by far the greatest miracle. That is the greatest miracle. The new birth, when God takes out our heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, that is the greatest miracle.